I am lucky. I'm a crystal meth addict. And I'm sober as fuck. I'm also transgender. You haven't noticed. Trans as fuck. You know, I uh, I recently got a, a like four-page email from my great-great-grand sponsor saying if you're still swearing and you're uh, qualifying, then you're still sick. I have some news for you. I am still sick, which means that I uh, have a solution. I can show up to these meetings. I can call my sponsor. I can do the work. Maybe one day, again, I won't swear so much while qualifying. Um, I'm gonna, you know, keep it simple. I'm gonna go back. Uh, my uh, first CMA meeting. I'm gonna start there. I'll, I'll go back a little bit. You know. I'll kind of jump around a little bit. My first CMA meeting was 15 years ago. You know, I was 23. I like went with my boyfriend, you know, the boyfriend that I fell in love with, that I thought if I did the crystal meth, I could keep a boyfriend, right? You know, it, you know I, went, I went to that meeting, I listened to what all you had to say, four or five shares in it. My hand went straight up and I said, Hi, my name is Lucky, I'm a crystal meth addict. This is my boyfriend, he needs a sponsor because he's ruining my high. When he gets high, he starts smoking the carpet, the cat litter, shit on the like kitchen floor, and it just ruins my high. Anyways, that was when crystal meth was still kind of okay in my life. You know, and by okay, I mean I was using daily, I was already shooting up, like I was putting on the show at home, you know. I would have the opportunities on the like fire escape, I would have dinner, I would go to bed, I'd wait until he was asleep, and then I'd crawl to my bathroom, and I'd hit the pipe, I'd get high, and then I'd fall back into the bed and pretend like I was sleeping. And then I didn't come back to CMA until many, many years later. So I'm gonna step back and tell you a little bit more about me, which is always hard for me to do. Um, I am a trauma human. I was sexually abused before I could walk. I was in it, uh, uh, a lot of physical violence in our home, in a domestic violence shelter by the time I was age six. I was sexually trafficked by the time I was age 11. I knew I was trans when I was a little human in an unsafe environment. I was homeless by the time I was 16 and living out of my car. And what I want to say about my trauma is my trauma doesn't make me an addict. What makes me an addict is when I put a drug of any kind, alcohol, poppers, pot, uh, ecstasy, ketamine, crystal meth, when I put that shit in my body, it releases this negative ticker tape, right? The negative ticker tape that I got when I was a little human. That negative ticker tape that said, I have no friends, nobody loves me, I don't want to be here, I want to get the fuck out. Those are the messages that I had as a little human. If you went through what I went through, then you used like I used. Right? Alcoholism is a disease of perception, right? Like, it, it wasn't until I was in these rooms for a really long time that I start, started to realize that all of those messages were lies. That I was lying to myself. 
the entire time, people loved me. I had lots of friends. I didn't know that until I started getting into the work. So yeah, I was the poster child for not drinking or drugging for a really long time because, you know, I had this gag reflex every time I smelled liquor. Anytime I smelled, smelled beer or hard liquor, it reminded me of the men that were abusing me as a little human, and I wanted to throw up. Because here's the thing, when I'm drinking or drugging, I do some crazy motherfucking shit, and I've heard your stories, I know you have done some crazy shit too. So yeah, I didn't start using uh, crystal meth until I met a boy when I was like 21, like in New York City and far away from, you know, that home environment, you know. I found him at 4 o'clock in the morning at some club. You know, at that time, you know, I was dancing at a lot of uh, beautiful establishments in the East Village, I know, because I saw a lot of you there. The hole, the cock, the slide, opening, you know. And, you know, as soon as the uh, drugs and alcohol were introduced to me, like, it was the magic, right? It was the magic that I was looking for. I, I was already an introvert, disconnected from everybody. I knew I liked sex, so I wanted lots of it. Um, and I could not stop. I was powerless from the uh, get-go. You know, uh, 15 years ago, I was already shooting up every single day. And I had already been to the program, you know, I was notorious for bringing my boyfriends to rehab, you know, I, I would, you know, as soon as they would ruin my highway too much, I'd pick them up and I'd take them to rehab and I'd drop them off and I'd continue using. So yeah, I didn't come into the fellowship until I was so broken and powerless and so just scraping along the, the bottom, you know, I, I basically spent another 10 years just kind of scraping by, you know. At the lowest in my uh, in my journey, you know, I, I gave up all my psych meds, my HIV meds. You know, I decided, you know, I was done. You know, I gave my dog to a friend who was going to Illinois, and uh, just thought I'd kill myself. I didn't sign my lease on my apartment, and so for the next year, I was I was homeless. I kept my job. I don't know how I did that. You know, and here's the thing, at that time I had my dream job, you know, I showed up to work every day, and so it was really easy for me to look at the way that you were using and be like, oh my god, Bob, at least I show up for work. You know, I had the dream job, the boyfriend, the dog, the apartments, and yet it is all empty. So yeah, I didn't come into this, back to this beautiful fellowship of humans until 2013, I came by a rehab. I only went to that rehab because I fell in love with another boy, and I was like, I can't, I can't stop using crystal meth. So uh, maybe I need that rehab, but I dropped all my boyfriends off that. So I took my ass out to the Hamptons. You know, I told everybody I was going. Uh, I told everybody I was going on vacation in the Hamptons. You know, at this place called CEO Center. I told my boyfriend, keep my my money, my credit card, keep everything, because I know I will check myself out, my ass out of rehab, and I will be drunk or high before I even hit the streets of New York. So I stayed there 29 days, and uh, the night before I got out of rehab, I found out that my boyfriend was using crystal meth. 
And uh, in rehab, I identified as one person. So anybody who has a hospital institution's commitment, God bless you, I have one, it's amazing. I identified as one person, and I called her in the van on the way, like on the way back to Manhattan, and I said, I'm afraid I'm gonna be struck from And she said, that's okay, call me in two hours, find a meeting. I showed up to Perry Street, I was scared to death, I, you know, I was certain that I wasn't going to be able to stay sober. My mom was my biggest trigger, you know, I'm just going to say. My mom was my biggest trigger, you know, my mom, myself, and my little brother all used critical meth together in the trailer back in Michigan. It was really hard for me to do the work in this program, but here's the thing, once I did it, once I realized that my life was contingent upon this program, I started to work with the steps like my life depended on it. I met my sponsor, you know, I met her, you know, she's the first person that I identified with uh, that same crystal meth anonymous. Some of you know her, she's Renee's colleague. She was chasing me out of a 10 a.m. love and gratitude meeting because I was crying, because I was living out of a suitcase on a couch in the middle of Brooklyn. And the first words I heard out of her mouth were, I love crystal meth. And I was like, I do too. And she said something about boys and girls, and I said, it's okay, you know, I've been legally female for seven years, you just don't see me yet, you know? And I find in this fellowship, there's a lot of you that still don't see me, and that's okay, you know? I'm gonna continue doing the work on myself, and I'm gonna let go of the results. So I started working with steps like my life depended on it, and I'm, you know, relapse is part of my story, because I had no self-worth when I came in here. I mean, what did I have? I had all my trauma. You know, I believe those voices that, you know, I have no friends, nobody loves me, I don't want to be here, I want to get the fuck out. You know, and I kept picking up, you know, after my, after 87 days, like, I made a decision holding on to my old ideas to call my mother who I was avoiding, and I picked up the same day. I went out 17 times after that first 87 days. I could not stop using it. I kept calling my sponsor, I kept going to meetings, and she, and she kept on saying, Honey, you're gonna die. And I said, I don't care. I really don't care. She's like, okay, call me tomorrow. Call me when you're ready. You know, she was so loving. So I started working with stuff like my life depended on it. And you know, and I learned it was a physical allergy and that mental obsession, you know, I learned that this is a disease of perception, that, that those were all lies. And then I started seeing that, wait a minute, these people actually like me. You know, I was a little confused at first. I was, you know, surrounding myself by sick people. I stopped doing that pretty quickly. You know, my sponsor took me saying, honey, like, how do you ever really get better if you don't call the people with one to five years? Like, I don't know. So I started doing it. I started doing stuff like my life depended on it and everything changed. You know, my first four, fourth and fifth step, I was able to like hear that shit out of the way so that I can actually have a, an honest, meaningful connection with another human being. And I was like, whoa. You know, I think of all the times that I was wandering around, like, looking for a power plug so that I could, like, charge my phone and nobody could see me. And here in recovery, I have friends everywhere. I cannot walk anywhere in this city, be on the subway in, in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, without running into one of these people and being like, hey, Lucky, and I'll be like, where do I know you from? I'm assuming it's from the rooms. I don't know if it's CNAA, 
ACA and any other fucking programs that I had learned that I needed because I needed all the help that I didn't get. So yeah, I got to eight nine. You know, my 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 ninth step was my mom. My mother was the biggest one that I had to do, and I knew it. I needed to show up. You know, as as soon as I started to, did that fourth and fifth step, I created a new relationship with her. That was, you know, based on reality. It wasn't based on what happened to me when I was little. It wasn't based on her shit. It was like, it was a new relationship. And I made direct amends to her and had an amazing uh, relationship with her. Like I showed up and, you know, she accepted my trans identity. Things were great. Like, and I knew that was the last time I was going to see my mom. As many of you know, my mom was diagnosed with cancer at the end of last year. And my last reservation that I was going to go out and get high. After she passed away, and I am still sober. You all helped me with that. That's not me. That's not me. It's not my ideas, right? Like, I know my sponsor, I know my great grand sponsor, I know my, like, I know all of them, and I keep in touch with them. You know, I heard this saying, like, the killer is in the house. I think about, I think about how much this disease in my head tries to trick me into going back out, back to believing those old ideas. You know, it's like a horror movie where, like, you see, you know, that, like, virgin who, like, uses her virginity and you know the bad guy's coming for her and she runs up the stairs in the house and you're like, bitch, why don't you just, like, jump out the window? Like, what is wrong with you? The killer is in the house, right? It's not the stuff on my outsides that's going to take me back out. It's what's going on in my head. The way I get out of that is... I go to a meeting, I call my sponsor, I work with newcomers, and God bless all the sponsors that I've had, you know? I got to that honest year of my sobriety, and uh, to anybody who is at my watch, here is my amends. It was one week later, I was doing it one week in advance, because I was certain I was gonna go back out. But then I got honest with my sponsor, and that was the last time I lied to her in truth, and uh, I got my first sponsee, and they walked a mile a minute, they were like, I have no idea what this bitch is saying, but you know what, like, I was taught to love them, pick up the phone, because maybe I'll stay sober today. So the first time I uh, came to a share day was five years, four years ago now. Um, my sponsor was like, meet your sponsee brother over at Sheridan. I was so scared of Crystal Meth Anonymous. I was like, I had already been there, I wasn't a Marine. And uh, I came here four years ago, he was doing service, and like, he brought me around and introduced me to all of you, and like, you all hugged me, you all welcomed me, and I, like, I was like, man, these people have no boundaries. They're hugging and hugging, and I'm like, I don't know you, why are you hugging me? You know, I, mean, I was no stranger to like NA. Lots of people in NA like to hug too, and those are some creepy hugs, but here's the thing, like, you know, here's the thing, it helped me, I was like, oh shit. If you ever walked into an ACA, and I had to add ACA to my sobriety a year ago when I started dealing with my mom stuff, 
the hugs over there are really creepy. But you know what? I started getting sober. I did I did 90 days over at the other uh, fellowship. I got about a year in that other, other fellowship. I started working the steps and working with others like life. My life depends on it because it does. The killer is in the house. And you know, I'm so grateful for everything that I've learned this past year. Um, this past year was hard. You know, last the last year was like the best year of my life. This year was hard, but here's the thing. Every time that it gets harder, you know, when my mom died, like I was able to like fly out there, show up. I'm not the kind of person who like see somebody after the past. Like I don't need to see dead bodies. I'm not interested in that. My brother's like, are you sure you don't want to go in there? I went in there, I held her hand, I said the third step prayer because I say it every day. At that point in my life, my life, I started adding the St. Francis Prayer of Assistance. I do that on a daily basis. Within an hour and a half of being at the funeral home, my baby brother met a pistol neck dealer at the house. I have no desire to drink or struggle or fuck up my life today. And that's thanks to all of you. You know, I'm on the phone all the time. You know, anybody who has met me in a meeting, you know, I'm, I'm the person who's most likely to say first, uh, hi to the person on my right and my left. I was not that human when I came in here. I was scared to fuck of all of you. Um, some of you probably remember that uh, my first like meeting where I finally, you know, was able to say something. It was a, uh, it was that like Saturday morning solution, or Sunday morning solution. I've been sitting there watching all of you, and I'm like, I don't know how this is working for all of them. Like, I didn't believe that the message of the program was for me. I thought it was for all of you but not for me, because if you would have known what I had been through. But then I finally, I finally raised my hand and I said, I am lucky. All of you motherfuckers talk to each other, but none of you ever say anything to me. And then you all came up to me, gave me your numbers, and I, I had this like aha moment. I was like, oh, maybe I was just afraid of all of that. Maybe if I was afraid, maybe they're afraid to say hi to me. And so I became that person who started introducing myself to the person on my right and my left. I'd say hi, my name's Lucky. And then you know what? They talk about themselves, you know? Addicts like to talk about themselves. And they get me out of my head for a few minutes. I'd say, are you getting numbers? Most of the time they're like, oh no, I got enough. And I'm like, good luck with that. I don't know what that looks like. I don't power to you. You just let me know if your old ideas are working for you or not, because that's how I'm gonna stay sober at the end of time. You know, is is what's going on with you. You know, I, I love everybody in this program. You know, this past year as I continue to grow, I started to learn that I don't like some of you, and that's okay too. I can love you and not like you. There are some, you know. Uh, people in here that, you know, I just don't like that much. And you know what? I'm still going to reach out to the hand of the program because I am told if I don't do that, if I don't do that behavior, reach out my hands and be love and service, I'm not going to make it. You know, when I showed up to my mom's funeral, the first thing, I, you know, I had to tell myself that I have to be of love and service. I showed up early, I set up chairs, you taught me to do that. You know, I discovered my family doesn't like me, and that's okay. You know, love and service, love and service. And that's how I approach this uh, this program, and it kind of leads everywhere. I'm, I'm now doing that in my workplace. Like, I got a sober job when I got my 90 days. I'm still at that job. I love my job. I started to love myself. 
I started to love myself because I started doing the achievable acts. They were just the things that my sponsor showed me how to do. It was the first intimate relationship that I had. And because she gave me the opportunity to have an intimate relationship, I can have an intimate relationship with you. And because I have an intimate relationship with you, I can have an intimate relationship at work. I can go into work and, you know what, I don't like most of my coworkers, but I can go in there and I can be like, how can I help? What can I do to make things better for you? Because I know if I do that, things are going to be better for me. And I'm a happy customer of this fellowship, of AA, of ACA, of Alana. There is 473 versions of the anonymous program. So if you're still sitting here and thinking that the steps don't work for you, Good luck with that, you know, I mean, you might be the one of you, but here's the thing, this is working for people all over the place, so if the steps is working for people all over the place, might as well try it, like, why not try it, what do you have to lose, you know, your story, you know, I, I really, I really like the drop and rock on workshop, you know, it's a really tough back to follow, I was like, how am I going to stand up there and be honest about my story out there, like, like, I want to drop the rock, you know, and I go into most relationships and, like, I'm like, okay, how can I love this person? You know, how can I reach out my hands? You know, if you don't have my phone number, please get it, call me, it might save my life, it might save your life. This is a life or death program, you know, and we forget that because we're in here looking at you, sounding at you, wondering what the next, like, job or boyfriend or stuff is. This is life or death. And the killer is in the house. Thank you for my sobriety. Thank you, Lucky. Please help me welcome our second speaker for this afternoon.